Vice President and Commander-in-Chief, it is my duty to the American people to report that renewed hostile actions against United States ships on the high seas in the Gulf of Tonkin have today required me to order the military forces of the United States to take action in reply. The initial attack on the destroyer Maddox on August 2nd was repeated today by a number of hostile vessels attacking two U.S. destroyers with torpedoes. Repeated acts of violence against the armed forces of the United States must be met not only with alert defense, but with positive reply. That reply is being given as I speak to you tonight. I shall immediately request the Congress to pass a resolution making it clear that our government is united in its determination to take all necessary measures in support of freedom and in defense of peace in Southeast Asia. Weapons do not make peace. Men make peace. And peace comes not through strength alone, but through wisdom and patience and restraint. We have said from the very beginning that all of us believe that Hitler's aggression almost destroyed the world. And we believe that communist aggression will destroy it if somebody doesn't stand up to it. So we all go in. And the Southeast Asia Resolution, which they misnamed, they called it the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. I, it would shame somebody didn't think it called it the Fulbright Resolution, like Fulbright Scholars thing, because Senator Fulbright introduced it with his knowledge, with his approval, with his consent. He passed it. He voted for it, 82 to 1. Don't tell me a Rhodes Scholar didn't understand everything in that resolution because we said to him at the White House and every other member of that committee that the President of the United States is not about to commit forces and undertake actions to deter aggression in South Vietnam to prevent this communist conspiracy unless and until the American people through their Congress sign on to go in. If the president's going in, as he may be required to do, he wants the Congress to go in right for the side of it. The events as they related them of August the 4th, 1964, were not true. Our ships were, it was not an unprovoked, deliberate attack. In fact, there was no attack at all. So it was, uh, the, see, they represented to us that we had been attacked, our ships had. Uh, in the on the high sea, 60 miles from land, and uh, without provocation, and wrapped the flag around us, and everybody, of course, as you know, in the House, you know there's some very cautious people in the House, unanimously approved it, because their emotions were all aroused by this dastardly attack, which was all a phony and a false. And the, and the, the rationale for the resolution was 
I mean, given to us, if we'll pass this quickly and unanimously if possible, it will be a warning to the North Vietnamese and they will no longer infiltrate, they'll quit. It'll scare them off. We'll bloody their nose and they'll stop. And I suppose in Texas politics, if you do that, these people stop. Uh, it just didn't work that way in Vietnam. But one thing I do know, and that is we're going to be bogged down in Southeast Asia for years to come, and we're going to kill thousands of American boys until finally, let me say, the American people are going to say what the French people finally said, they've had enough. into you've been shot in the arm so what your buddy's been killed so what gi you want vietnamese cigarette for a box of time you could get a carton of pre-packed pre-rolled marijuana cigarettes soaked in opium for ten dollars you could get a vial of pure heroin you could get liquid opium speed decided to dedicate his body as a torch to light the struggle to preserve religious teaching. I saw him step out of his car and assume the lotus position. Then a monk stepped forward and helped the reverend pour gasoline on himself. At that moment, at that moment, a flame engulfed his body. During the reverend Kwang Duk's cremation, everything was burned except for his heart, which remained intact. His heart was set on fire two more times, but it still did not burn.
And so one night they were told, the kids were told, tomorrow you're going to meet the enemy. The North Vietnamese, the regular North Vietnamese battalion is going to be there and you get a chance to get payback. And the kids did then what uh, they did then. Uh, the young soldiers toked it up and the uh, senior enlisted men and the officers drank it up. But they all got up at three or four in the morning, jumped on choppers and went to kill and be killed. You have to give them their due. And they got into the village and there's no soldiers there. The intelligence was bad, as it always is. And they gathered people. There was no fire at all, really, just old women, men, and children uh, heating up water for their morning rice. And they um, gathered them eventually into three large ditches and began to execute them. They told us there was supposed to be some action there, and I just wondering where it was. During the mission, as it was going on, we kept just reconning around. Started seeing a lot of bodies. It didn't add up, you know, how people were getting killed and wounded, and we weren't receiving any fire. Just, you know, it didn't make sense. There was, there was too many casualties there. And how they were, the locations they were in, you know, figured out artillery couldn't do this. Because there were, you know, bodies and places the artillery didn't hit trying to get out of the village. When I sat down with a friend who had been there, three weeks after the massacre and we were telling each other war stories and we hadn't seen each other in three months and I said what have you been doing he said what have you been doing he said oh man did you hear what we did at Pinkville I said no what'd you do at Pinkville he said we went in there and we killed everybody I said killed everybody what do you mean he said we just shot them lined them up and shot them down three four five hundred people I don't know how many and my immediate reaction was you know these no good sons of bitches Look what they've gotten me into. Look what they've gotten us all into. They left me now with a choice to turn in my friends and be a part of this horrible crime. And I'm not going to be a part of this horrible crime. I had a sergeant tell me when I first come over here, they call you green seed. He told me to stick with me. And he said, I'll teach you the ropes and you'll make it home. So I stuck with him. I seen things he done that I thought were wrong. But I thought if this was the way I got to stay alive, so be it. And I done what he said, and I made it home. One mother had tucked a child, a two or three-year-old boy, under her stomach, and somehow he survived all the bullets. And they heard a keening noise, the soldiers told me, and this little boy climbed his way up through the ditch full of other people's blood, got to the top and began to run just to run away and Lieutenant Kelly turned to Meadlow, his most dependable shooter, others had stopped at a certain point or shot high and said, Meadlow, plug him. And Meadlow looked at one person and couldn't do it and um, Kelly then with the great, you know, very saucy-like, uh, grabbed his carbine, officers had a smaller rifle called a carbine, ran behind him and shot him. It was a boy about four years old, three years old. I had a son at home, same age. He's thinking that it could be your kid. I didn't feel like there was any reason for the public to know because I felt like this had been done before. I didn't think that uh, I'd ever be thinking that much of the day. How many people did you kill? 36. And how did you keep count? Cutting their ears off. What did you do with them? You know, your shower rods that have the metal clips on them that look like a keychain, kept them on them, hooked them on your belt loop. 
What did you do with the ears? They took them away in customs. Or I'd still have them and I could have brought them with me. Vietnamese have a habit of when you come into a village, they get scared and they huddle. They all get together, you know, and they just, you know, huddle. We'd cut their head off and put it on a bamboo pole and put ace of spades up there. Nine chances out of ten when you'd done that, the goose wouldn't come back to that area. It was something religious. Vietnamese are, are funny people. You can't realize what they're thinking of. They seem to have no understanding of life. They don't care whether they live or die. That machete I'd have got at home that I customized, I've cut many a head off with that. That's what means so much to me. As, as far as resistance is concerned, we didn't encounter any resistance whatsoever. It was like there was a right and there was a wrong. But it didn't seem like the wrong was that far away from the right. So I stepped over the line. I still dream of Vietnam. I still want to go there. But I don't want to return the way they're going over there now. I want to go back over to kill. Why? I miss it.